Let's pray uh, just that we would continue to uh, uh, develop that ministry going forward. So pray with me, please. Father, we thank you for uh, Kathy and her leadership of our children's ministry. We thank you for the many teachers and helpers um, that are there that make sure that our kids grow up uh, knowing about their God and uh, that they are equipped um, with the scriptures, Lord. Thank you for a church, um, God, that has a lot of different ages and that we get to rub up against one another, people older than us and younger than us, people of different backgrounds and different ethnicity. Uh, God, we know that your church uh, in the day to come uh, will be from every tribe and every nation and every language, and we rejoice in that. So may we be good at developing that now and developing those that you have entrusted to us. Lord, this moment now we come before your word. And it's a sobering thing because we know your word is like a scalpel. It is meant to cut us. It is meant to show us who we are in light of our holy God. And yet it is also meant to show us the glories that are in store for those who have taken refuge in Christ. Uh, So Lord, teach us again by your spirit. I pray that, Lord, any of my words, um, which would be distracting, would would just fall to the ground, but that your word would penetrate our hearts. So teach us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you open your Bibles to Revelation uh, chapter 2? We're starting at verse 8. Continue on in our our series, just through the first few chapters of Revelation, seven letters to seven churches. So you're on your way home from work. You pull up to your mailbox to stop and grab the mail. And inside there is a piece of mail that you dread. What is it? Jury summons. IRS. What else? Property tax bill. I heard it over here. Any letter with multiple attorneys' uh, names at the top. That must be the neighbor's mail, right? Uh, Today, we are looking at uh, the church of Smyrna, and we get to look at a piece of mail that they got that uh, was difficult, uh, this particular letter from King Jesus. And it starts this way. Follow along with me, Revelation 2.8. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Ah, tough letter, yeah? I was talking to someone about it this week, and they said, I hope I never receive a letter like that. Um, Before I kind of get through teaching this here, I I feel like I need to start with a little bit of a disclaimer or a a caveat at least, um, because our passage today obviously addresses the subject of suffering. Uh, specifically persecution, leading to poverty and even to the point of death. Uh, And so 
with that in mind, I feel sort of compelled to acknowledge to you and to myself that um, I really have not suffered that much in my life. I really haven't. Um, I've had tough seasons of ministry. Uh, I've experienced conflict. Our family, probably like everyone here, has had lean times financially. Uh, I've even had an occasional fight with my wife, which she usually wins, you know. Do wives ever lose a fight? I was going to say, fellas, can we have a meeting afterwards and talk about this? I feel like I always lose. (laughs) But even though I've had these kinds of struggles, and they're common among men, um, uh, you know, we've never missed a meal. I've never been homeless. Uh, I've never myself known real severe or prolonged grief. And to this point in my life, um, I've never been really persecuted for my faith. Uh, the closest I've, I've, I've come to suffering actually is owning a Chrysler for a few years. <laughs> if you've had one, you know, you can relate. Um, I do just feel the need to acknowledge sort of my limited experience with suffering because for me, much of this passage is theoretical, not experiential. Um, it's more about what could happen than what about has happened in my life. Um, nevertheless, this is God's word. It is God's word for us, and it is true whether we have experienced it or not. In fact, we need to plant God's word in our life and in our heart before we need to draw upon it, not after. Right? The farmer knows you plant before you harvest. And so it is with the Christian. You plant God's word in your heart so that it's firmly rooted and established and it is bearing fruit when you need to draw upon it. Pity the man who does not harvest or who looks to harvest what he has not planted, right? So let's learn some things from the church in Smyrna because someday their experiences may be our experiences and we want to be able to imitate their courageous faith. Uh, First of all, a couple things we should know about Smyrna and their situation uh, they were another prominent city in, uh, in the region of Asia, uh, like Ephesus. They're about 35 miles to the north of Ephesus. Um, unlike the other churches that we find in Revelation, uh, Smyrna is still in existence. Uh, today it's known uh, by the name Izmir. Uh, it was actually the home of the tour guide that took us around Turkey while I was there recently. Uh, and it is a beautiful town. Uh, and it has all kinds of beautiful architecture. It ha- does now, and it did at that day. It's located on a busy uh, harbor and a major trade route. I've got a map on the back of your handout if you want to glimpse it there, and I'll also uh, project it for you here. Uh, and you can see kind of where it's located. There it is. Uh, again, it was a proud town. They were proud of their beauty and their their architecture and what all they had to offer and their robust business, Uh, they had sort of, they referred to themselves as first among the cities uh, in Asia. That was kind of their self-affirmation. And you can almost imagine, you know, pulling into town and the side, the sign outside, right? I think Fairbanks says something like the Golden Heart City, right? Well, there's, would say something like uh, first among the cities in Asia, Um, it's interesting in that Jesus actually takes sort of this reference and this claim 
And there's a bit of a wordplay, and he so almost sort of turns it against the church or against the city here in a little bit as he writes to the church. Um, of the seven churches addressed here in Revelation, Smyrna is actually located closest to Rome. And therefore, Rome's influence was really great upon the city. And one of the things that had crept into the city, it became sort of the center for the imperial cult of emperor worship. Uh, basically, where the emperor of Rome was deified and, and people would have to show their allegiance to him by stating that he was Lord and Savior. There also was a very large Jewish population in Smyrna, uh, which Rome had granted basically religious freedom. Uh, and they were sort of unique in that exemption, where other religions, new religions, weren't accorded that, uh, but the Jewish community was. And so this left the Christians in Smyrna basically exposed to persecution on two fronts. They were persecuted by Rome for refusing to worship the emperor, but on top of that, they were persecuted by the Jewish community who was all too happy to basically throw Christians under the bus and turn them over to Rome as a way of deflecting attention upon themselves. Um, Smyrna was actually the city where the very famous bishop Polycarp uh, was martyred in AD 55. He was burned alive for uh, being unwilling to recant of his faith and unwilling to uh, call Caesar Lord. Uh, historians tell us that the Romans carried out the execution, but that it was the Jews that actually brought the wood for the fire. That's a picture of, of the setting. Okay, That happened later, but nevertheless, this was, this was kind of the setting uh, of Smyrna here. And so the Christians there were a faithful minority that was basically taking a beating from both the church and the state, if you will. And that had really left them exposed and impoverished. You can imagine, where would you find work? Where, where would you farm? Where would you harvest for yourself? Where would you find lodging? So they were very vulnerable and exposed because they faced this multifaceted persecution because of their exclusive worship of Jesus the Messiah. And so this letter basically does four things. It acknowledges uh, their faithfulness. It also warns them that things are about to get worse before they get better. Thirdly, it exhorts them to persevere through this season. And fourthly, it encourages them with an eternal reward. Uh, now last week I talked about sort of the general structure of the letters that we find uh, in, in these first few chapters of Revelation. Uh, you might remember this. I talked about sort of the commendation part, and then there's a complaint, and then a correction. And we can kind of generally find that pattern in each of the letters. Um, this letter defies that a little bit. Of course, now that I've introduced it, the next letter is not going to follow the pattern. Uh, but there are also two additional features that we didn't talk about last week that we find here as well. Uh, the first one is in the closing of a letter, uh, we typically find some kind of consolation or assurance those who are victorious, those who persevere, this is what you have coming to you. And that's a regular feature of the letters. But at the beginning of the letter, of each letter, we find a bit of a Christology. We find a description of Jesus himself, something about him and his attributes that inform the recipients in their present circumstance. Uh, and so here we find, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, these are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died 
and came to life again. So understanding their situation, you can see how these might be comforting words. In fact, uh, in this instance, as I said, there is, a, there is a play on words here. Well, the city of Smyrna has smugly been claiming this place of prominence in the region, first among the cities in Asia. It is as though Jesus is reminding everyone, actually, I'm first. I'm first among all the cities everywhere. I'm first, and I'm last. And so we are reminded here, right at the beginning of this letter, of the preeminence of Christ. Prominent as this city sees itself, it doesn't begin to approach the preeminence of Christ. Throughout the scriptures, he is introduced to us as the Alpha and the Omega, right? The beginning and the end. The ancient of days. The one who is and was and is to come. And so all of this is meant to be a reminder and to give assurance for those who are suffering of the sure vindication that Christ Jesus, King Jesus, will bring. It's a way of saying, I got your back. I want to remind you, and this is something you probably know, but we need to be reminded, God the Son is eternal. He has no beginning. He existed in eternity past with the Father and the Spirit in perfect contented fellowship. They didn't get lonely someday and decide to make us. Very content and of themselves, but God decided to show His glory by making a people who would recognize and worship Him for who He is. And Jesus is the final judge. And so you can cite any earthly status uh, that you want but you're going to lose against the preeminence of Christ. This is his world. He made it. He's redeemed it. He will rule over it one day with his church at the culmination of all things. We are meant to see right at the beginning here the preeminence of Christ. And this is significant, I think, for our day and age. Uh, has bearing on what we experience We live in a time and a place that enjoys, I'm going to say something a little provocative here, uh, we enjoy the separation of church and state. And I'll tell you, I love that, and I hope you do too, but I know not everybody feels that way. Here's why I really love that. Um, I want the freedom to worship. I don't want to be told who to worship or how to worship. And I really don't want the government taking the responsibility of instructing my children on who God is and what he demands of them. Amen to that? So I am thrilled that we have a separation of church and state. That's kind of a Baptistic distinctive. I'm thrilled with that. But sometimes I think the state occupies that position with a sense of superiority as though it's something that were handed to us, if you know what I'm saying. As though they were in the driver's seat and the church were the recipients of this very generous gift. And I would remind all of us The letter to the Romans says that there is no governing authority except that God has established it, right? And that doesn't mean that all of the rulers out there are God's man or God's woman doing God's will. It simply means that all authority has been granted by God. And even those who go against him and even those who go against his people will be unwittingly accomplishing God's purposes. And that is a comfort for us Christians, is it not? God has permitted their rule, not the other way around. And Jesus makes this clear for the church in Smyrna, and I think we should rejoice in that as well. 
Jesus is sovereign over the state. Jesus is sovereign over the church. Christ is supreme. And all of the world will be judged in terms of their relationship to Christ. Jesus is also sovereign over other world religions, even those who claim to be his servants, right? Last week we saw that there were some in Ephesus who claimed to be apostles, but were found to be false. Here in Smyrna, we see some who claim to be his chosen people in the synagogue, and yet Jesus calls them a synagogue of Satan. And so the Christian does well to keep this in mind, I think, as we navigate our daily lives. Christ knows the opposition that we face, and he will hold people to account. Whether it's the church or the state, he is the final judge. I think, again, this just gives us great confidence. And these are not just empty words of rhetoric by Jesus. He's not just saber-rattling here. These words from Jesus have been demonstrated. His authority has been shown He is one who died and came to life again. And I submit to you that would have been an encouragement for Smyrna. What? We're going to face incarceration? We're going to be persecuted to the point of death, potentially? But we're reminded that Jesus is one who holds death in his hands. Jesus is the one who defeated death. So he is King Jesus. No one over him, no one before him, no one after him. He is absolutely supreme. Well, let's look at the commendation here. One of the things positive that Jesus says about the church is this. They're spiritually rich. Even in spite of their economic poverty. In verse 9, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Uh, What's really fascinating here is that they are spiritually rich, in spite of this, the, the difficulties that they were experiencing, whereas later on in these letters, we'll find the Laodiceans who thought themselves rich, but are actually spiritually impoverished. Uh, they, were, they were spiritually bankrupt, basically, as, as we're told. Interesting how those two often work in, in uh, inverse ways there. Uh, let's look at the complaint. What does Jesus complain to the church about? There isn't one. That would be nice, huh? You've heard word maybe about these letters that are circulating and the Ephesians got rung up and the Laodiceans and others and you think, oh man, we're going to get, you know, we're just going to get smacked here. And yet you get the letter and no complaint is offered. Smyrna and Philadelphia are the only two churches who don't have complaints issued against them. And I think this is interesting. Hear this loud and clear here. The fact that there is no complaint against them and yet there is suffering, I think causes us to make some important observations. And uh, the first one is this, that Christians should expect suffering. Christians should expect suffering. 2 Timothy 3.12 makes this explicit, where it says, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The Bible does not teach that prosperity and power encounters are normal Christianity. The Bible teaches that normal Christianity, who, for those who are following Christ, is suffering and persecution. In other words, if I can say this with all due love and concern, 
The day of trouble is coming. It's coming. That's what we're told to expect. Jesus says it himself, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Secondly, not all of us suffer the same way. I think it's very easy to look into another person's life and to sort of assume that they have it all together. Their life looks so much easier in contrast to my own. But all of us know that there are corners in our life that we would happily change if we could, and we don't tell anybody about them. We know that of our life, and we ought to expect that in the lives of others as well. I think social media has especially made this pronounced, right? It's very easy to sort of put the veneer of your life out there that you want to, especially if you're feeling bad about something. It's like, look up here, you know, look at this. This is good. We can take our pictures, our images, everything about our life that we like. We can kind of have a photoshopped life out there, taking all of the things out of it that we don't like in it. But the reality is that everybody suffers and that our suffering is not necessarily the same. Think about the Ephesians. Their suffering, even as we looked at it last week, their struggle was internal. I mean, you might look at them, from Smyrna, the church might have said, man, the Ephesians have it all together. They've got a beautiful library, they've got a stadium, they've got a theater, they're on a seaport, everything looks great there. They don't have this pressure from the Romans and their city the way we do. Yeah, they've got, they've got people they've got to stand against, but they've just stood against them and stood against them and stood against them. They look great. But what did we learn last week? They had lost their first love. That steady stand for truth had taken its toll on them in their heart, and they, they had sort of an internal struggle. Smyrna here, their stand for Christ had led them to steady persecution, slander, poverty, incarceration. We don't all suffer the same way. Don't presume that others in your life are not suffering. Also, I would say about this that not all adversity is bad. There is a goodness to it. Suffering is, in fact, a curriculum. Um, It's not the one we would choose for ourselves if we had the option. But suffering has a way of forming us in ways that would not happen in easy living. Um, All of you know somebody. You can put somebody in your mind's eye right now whose character is beautiful. There is a grace about them, a wisdom, a maturity. Those things are formed in the crucible of difficulty. There's no shortcuts to those places. They are that way because of what they have been through. Suffering moves us to love God, not for His blessings, but for Himself, for who He is. Very often, the suffering is a way of weaning us off of those things that serve as idols instead of God himself. I also want to show you something interesting that's going on in this passage grammatically here. Some of you will love this. Some of you can take a little nap while I get this together here. This is in verse 10, where basically it talks about how Satan is going to um, basically put them in prison, and then it says that they're going to be tested in order that they would be tested. And there's an interesting grammatical thing going on here in the Greek. The, the verb for test is in the middle voice, which I'm sure is interesting to everyone. But what that means is this. There's sort of a distancing that's happening here. In other words, when it's put in the middle voice, it kind of shows that the testing doesn't necessarily belong to the subject that's been introduced to us in the verse. In other words, this testing isn't necessarily 
from Satan. Uh, it's, it's captured a little bit better in the ESV. It's, there it's rendered this way. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulation. Here's what I want you to hear. This grammatical distancing often happens in the book of Revelation. It's called a divine passive. And what it means to suggest is that there's more than one agent at work here. Satan has an intention to hurt them. But God is permitting it in order to build up their faith and to reveal who they are. Uh, We've seen this explicitly in the book of Genesis on the lips of Joseph, right? You intended what you meant for evil, God intended for good. And so those are called the divine passives, and they they show up regularly in the book of Revelation, and uh, one of them is, is actually here. Third observation about suffering. Suffering does not occur without God's knowledge and permission. Uh, Notice that Jesus begins this letter again with sort of this omniscient declarative, right? I know. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not. Then he goes on to tell them, the devil will put you, some of you, into prison and you will be tested. Suffering does not occur without God's knowledge and God's permission In fact, sometimes God nominates us for it. If you know your Bible well, you probably know who I'm referring to here. We see this instance in the book of Job, don't we? It's a fascinating passage in Job 1, verse 6. It starts this way. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. I could stop right there. I have a whole bunch of questions, right? Questions. Uh, but we'll go on. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Okay. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Nominated. (laughs) There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You've blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. Now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then. Everything he has is in your power. But on the man himself do not lay a finger. God knows about these sufferings in advance, yet he permits them, and in sometimes he nominates us for them. And I would, I would submit to you, knowing these things uh, is for some of us an encouragement, and for others a great irritation, right? Why would God do that? I think the difference between the two, whether we are encouraged by the fact that God knows and permits, or whether we are discouraged by it, reveals something in us, and that is, do we have a high view of God or not? In other words, is he God or do I think I'm God? Is he sovereign or do I just wish he would do my bidding? Who is sovereign here? Who is preeminent in our lives? We are deeply encouraged by the letter to the Romans about God's committed 
goodness to us when he says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? In other words, God has already given the most costly thing. If he was going to hold back on anything, it would have been his son. But having given him, won't he also give us all those good things that we need? In other words, we can trust what we have been given. Tim Keller has said it this way, You can be assured that God has answered all your prayers just as you would if you knew all that God knows. Fourth observation. Suffering is not a certain signal of God's displeasure. Not a certain signal of His displeasure. Just because God permits some suffering in your life does not mean that it's necessarily just deserts either yours or someone else's. Now, it's true that there are consequences to sin, right? Which is why God has warned us about them, actually. He's not trying to spare something good from us. He's trying to spare that which is inherently destructive. Don't do these things. So if we do them, there's inherent consequences in them. And there, it's true that there are times that God disciplines His children. He tells us He disciplines those He loves in Hebrews 12. So just because bad things happen does not guarantee that God is unhappy with, uh, with us. And that is, in fact, where Job's friends fail, right? Uh, this calamity comes upon him, and they lived in a, it's a do-good, get-good world. So if you got bad, you must have done bad. So what is it, Job? Confess it. Put it out there. Put it out there. What is it? One of my favorite sermons that um, Pastor Paul Holmes, my predecessor, um, preached uh, was, was on this passage. And, uh, uh, or on this, this sort of early story of Job, and he talked about how that the, the Scripture says that his friends sat with him for a week and said nothing and just listened to his lament. And then Paul says, if, if the story had just stopped right there, they would have gone down in history as the greatest friends ever. But the story goes on, and they open their mouth, and they begin to interject the theology of their own making. Just because something bad has fallen into our life or to someone else's does not mean that God is displeased. It might be reasonable to ask, is this, some, is this discipline? Is this correction? Is this a consequence? But it may well be something that God has called us to for purposes known only to himself. And that's the next observation. Some are called to suffer for Christ. I would encourage you to consider that in your own life that there has probably seldom been a time where you grew when things were easy and where things were going along smoothly. Typically, we grow in those times when we are flying against the headwinds of adversity. Those are the times of greatest spiritual growth in our individual lives. And I think that is true for the church corporately as well. In fact, right now, today, you can look around and ask the question, where is the church growing most rapidly? You know where it is? Africa and Iraq. That's where the church is really thriving. And so I think it is typically, again, it is the headwinds of adversity where growth occurs. It's the tailwinds of affluence that typically cause us to crash and burn. And we see that really pronounced with Laodicea when we get to their letter. C.S. Lewis has commented on this. He says, pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures 
speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Uh, I also think it's very interesting to see how differently the early church viewed suffering in contrast to how we view it today. Think about this. Just in your mind's eye, imagine yourself walking into Fred Meyer and going down the pain relief aisle. It's not, it's not an end cap, right? It's not a little shelf. It's a whole aisle. And a lot of people today aren't even going to that aisle to relieve their pain, are they? I'll just leave that there for your <laughs> consideration. I'm amazed how many new shops are springing up around town and how many ways people are trying to hide their pain, right? We don't like pain in our culture. We want to get rid of it right now. But the early church looked at suffering and they saw it as an opportunity to more closely identify with Christ Jesus in his own suffering. That is a very different perspective than we hold. We see an example of this in Acts chapter 5. The apostles who had just been flogged by the Sanhedrin for sharing their faith says that they leave rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. What a perspective. Worthy? They saw suffering as an honor bestowed upon them to suffer for the name of Christ and to more closely identify with him. Sixth observation. Remember that Christ suffered. If he was killed for being Christ, then it seems likely that we will at least suffer for being Christians, right? Just sort of logically follows. And alongside of that, we have one who understands our suffering. Remember that when you go to prayer in your moment of pain and agony and struggle, that you are not going to a God who only knows of this theoretically, but you are knowing, going to a God who knows of it firsthand experientially. This is told to us in uh, Isaiah 53 and other places. In the forward looking for the coming Messiah and his suffering, it says he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. When we go to the Lord in our pain, with our struggles, he doesn't go, I'm sorry, I have, I have no reference point for that. You better believe he knows it. He knows our pain. He absolutely gets it. The seventh observation here. Those who are victorious are rewarded. He says at the end, be faithful even to the point of death and I will give you life as your victor's crown. I will give you life as your victor's crown. I think sometimes it's difficulty, one of the greatest difficulties we see is, even if I'm willing to go through this suffering, I would really like to know what God is doing with it. And sometimes that part of the equation is never given to us. It's left as a mystery. Um, You guys know I recently had the chance to go to Turkey And um, one of the places that we went to, it was one of the first sites, uh, was Patara. It was a city that the Apostle Paul had traveled in. And one of the things they had there in the city uh, was this stadium. It's the place where uh, games would take place. And yet this was also a stadium that had been retrofitted so that one of the games that could take place was the tearing apart of Christians for amusement. 
And so it happened at this particular end of the stadium. And I got to tell you, <laughs> walking around there as a tourist, just looking at the soil and thinking there was a day when this soil was drenched with blood. This was the site of the dismemberment of people who stood with Christ and loved him. This was a place where Christians were specifically persecuted for their faith. And um, it was very moving uh, to just kind of walk around and to think about that. And I took some pictures, this one. And then the next one, um, I'll probably need to explain a little bit. But I saw this poppy. And actually, if you've ever been to Turkey, you know that there are, in the springtime there are red poppies that grow up everywhere. I'm not used to that. Uh, from California, we had orange poppies. And I can remember at a kid, as a kid that when it got hot in the summertime, these little pods would grow. And when it got very hot, they would burst. And these little poppy seeds would kind of shower all over the ground and they would reproduce rapidly. And we would actually harvest these pods so that we could put them where we wanted around the yard. And we had, you know, uh, California poppies all over the place. It was beautiful. Uh, I didn't know that they were red in Turkey, but they are. And I just, I saw this, this red flower growing out of this concrete here. Having fallen to the ground and trampled there, it looked like a splotch of blood. And yet we know that poppies falling to the ground like this and bursting their seeds open is what produces seed and seeds and reproduction. Tertullian said this. He said that the blood of martyrs is the seed of Christianity. And looking around and seeing these poppies in this place where Christians had been killed was just a reminder to me, even as I thought about our own presence there. Here we are, 20 Christians from across the world who are coming back to this place where they thought they were wiping out Christians. And those that died and were dismembered for their faith probably were thinking, it's falling apart, the wheels are coming off, it's over, we've lost. And yet 2,000 years later, I'm thinking, I'm a Christian from Alaska coming here to see this. And to rejoice in their faithfulness. They thought it was over. But again, as Tertullian said, the blood of martyrs is the seed of Christianity. We are meant to persevere and to leave in God's hands what he will do. Uh, we are, the, the passage concludes, the letter concludes, with whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. And so our last two points are this. Correction, there isn't one. There wasn't any complaint, so there's no correction. And so Jesus concludes with encouragement. Your perseverance will be rewarded. Our present sufferings are held up against and contrasted with the glories that are to come. And we see this in each letter uh, that are written to these seven churches. You're in the midst of the struggle right now. But God has glories ahead in store for you who are faithful and persevere that you cannot even imagine. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you um, that we get to read someone else's mail. Uh, as you instruct them, we ourselves are instructed. I pray, Lord, that we would actually believe that the day of trouble is coming but that as you have taught your disciples that we should take heart because you have overcome this world and the trouble in it. Uh, Lord, make us faithful. May we accept the suffering that uh, comes into our life and not wish it away. May we instead be trained by it, tutored by it as a curriculum from your hand, trusting that you're sovereign over all things.
We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.